It is a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning on this Father's Day. As Paul said, I am a father of three. I have three teenagers pray for me. Thank you. Uh, at least for another month when my oldest turns 20. So I have a 13-year-old daughter, the princess of the household, and a 17- and 19-year-old son. So it is a, it is a I am a dad, and it's, it's fun to be here. You know, it was a pleasure to be here last week. I, I came last week, my wife and I, to, uh, to hear Paul speak, and, and I was excited about some of the things that he, he had to say. And, and I just want to say a couple of things about what I heard last week. One, may his tribe increase, uh, the, the willingness to stand up and, and speak God's truth about such an important part of our lives, uh, our personal relationships, our, our marriages, and our families. Uh, and I also want to uh, say that you know, the, the things he was saying I, you know, I, I'm not going to repeat uh, what he was saying, but I've got to tell you how much I endorse the cautions that he was putting in and, and the ways that, or the, when he was talking about the things that people do to, to really wreck their marriage. So, so, and I appreciate it because I do have the opportunity to speak at different parts of the country, and, and, and most of the churches and groups that have me in want to talk about how to make marriage work. The problem is there are so many churches that don't want to talk about it. And, and there's really only two reasons I can find that they don't want to. One, they don't know what to say. They're not really sure how to help the people in their churches, in their organizations, have better marriages. Well, we're going to cover that a little bit today. Not exhaustively, but we'll, we'll get into that. And the second reason I find it is that they're just scared. They're scared of making a stand on something so important because they're worried about offending people. They're worried about driving people away. But you know what? On this topic of marriage and family... When 90% of the people in this country will be married at one point in their life, when 100% of the people in this country are part of a family of one kind or another, talking about marriage and family, you're not going to drive people away. You're going to help people in some of the most important areas of their life. Now, fear gets associated with marriage a lot. Anybody ever been scared? Yeah, we all have. Okay. Now, I remember when I was like seven years old, we used to go down to this place called Barton Creek. I grew up in Central Texas. And uh, we'd go down to this uh, creek to go swimming. And, and when the, after it had rained, the creek would really be running. And one of our favorite things to do is we used to have this, this tractor tire inner tube, you know, this huge thing uh, that we would play with. And, and, and we would tie a rope to it. And it was about 18 feet deep, and we'd tie the other end to a big rock so it would, wouldn't wash down the stream, and we would dump off the rock and you know, get in the tube and jump out of the tube and back and forth, back and forth. Hot Texas summer, great way to spend a day. Well, there was one particular time, again, I was about seven years old, where I was swimming under the tube, and I still don't know how it happened, but my foot got tangled in the rope. And all of a sudden, I noticed I was trying to go to the surface, and I could feel that there was something tied around my, my foot. And the tire was right there, and I can still to this day see it, grab the tire and pull enough to get my face just above the water and scream uh, like any seven-year-old facing what he thought was the end would do. And I can also still remember to this day, my dad, uh, uh, if you remember the old uh, Tarzan days, my dad putting a knife in his mouth and diving, we're in Texas, remember, and diving in the river, coming to cut me loose. You know, and for that re- to this day, I still carry a knife in my pocket. The airlines don't let me carry it on with me, but I guess I'm not going to drown on an airline. But, but diving in to cut me loose. Now, I'll tell you, some people will want to sit around and talk about explaining, oh, you know, how dangerous that was, and you shouldn't have had the rope there, and they want to explain all these reasons as to why my foot got caught in the rope. But I'll tell you what, when I was caught in the rope, I didn't care. I could care less about why. All I wanted was somebody to save me. 
And that's where people get to when their marriages get in trouble. They, they rarely want to know why they're in trouble. They just want somebody to save them. Now, here's the problem with this. Once marriages and families really get in trouble, it's normally not an easy save. It's not Tarzan jumping in with a knife in his mouth and cutting the rope and all of a sudden everything's cool. You know, studies have shown that the average couple comes to marriage counseling six years after they realize they have a problem. There's a lot of damage that's been done during that period of time. So, so they're coming in, and the fear that they're bringing into that relationship is that if somebody doesn't fix something now, this relationship is going to die. And the sad part is, by the time they get to marriage counseling, a lot of them do. So one of the first things I want to talk about this morning are some of the myths that allow that to happen. Some of the myths this culture has bought into that have allowed people to let their families get in such trouble that by the time somebody finally starts waving the white flag or the red flag of warning, it can be too late. And the first one is this. The first one is our culture believes in what I call the lottery ticket mentality of marriage. I stopped on the way here this morning at the Crystal Flash. Spend a dollar. Who's your lotto? Worth $16 million. I'll sell it to anybody in there for 100 bucks. Who wants it? 100 bucks. See, nobody, because you haven't, you've never been hit you know, on the head with a piece of an airplane, you know, nobody here is going to spend 100 bucks on something I spend a dollar for because nobody in here believes this is a winner. And yet, so many of us think that if you have a good marriage, it's like you were standing in line at the right place at the right time at the crystal flash when they were passing out spouses and you just got lucky. Well, luck has nothing to do with this. A, a, a good marriage works on what I call the law of the farm. Now, my dad was a farmer, and, and I learned the law of the farm. If you do the work of the farm, if you plant and you plow and you weed and you fertilize and you put out pesticides and, and you do all of those things, yes, there will be good years with lots of rain and bad years with drought and disease, but for the most part, if you do the work of the farm, you get what? A crop. That's the law of the farm. It's the same thing with marriage. If we do the work of marriage... We will have what everybody who getting married wants, and that's a great marriage. You know, a second problem we have is we live in what we social psychologists call a post-marriage culture. Now, now a post-marriage culture is not one in which people no longer get married. A post-marriage culture is one in which people no longer see marriage as necessary. I mean, I was talking with my oldest son and his girlfriend the other night, and they graduated a year ago from high school, and we were talking about, you know, any of your friends married yet? No, no. Any of them have kids? Oh, yeah, a lot of them have kids. None of them are married. Because, because our culture doesn't believe that you need marriage for kids anymore. Pick the rock star, the sports star, the TV star, whoever it is. Marriage is not necessary. Well, we'll see a little bit at the end of this message that that's really not true. And, and even more, in this post-marriage culture, studies still show today that the vast majority of high school and college students still list having a happy marriage as their top goal in life. More than wealth, more than health, more than even a happy family, they want a happy marriage. But now here's one of our other problems. We've let our happiness determine whether or not we have a good marriage or not. Now, I am not one of those that thinks God wants us to just be miserable. I, I, I'm not one of those that, that and there are some Christian teachers out there that teach, well, you know, just endure marriage, don't worry about your happiness. Well, again, happiness is not the goal. 
Happiness cannot be the daily measure of our relationships and our marriage. But you know what? If we do the work of the farm, happiness is the result. Now, I know that there are people from all over the map in here this morning. There are those who have been married one year, been married 20 years, been married more years than that, have been through a divorce. There's those of you that are single and you realize this is on marriage and you're hoping that I'm going to bow my head and pray so you can sneak out the back. Uh, There may be some others that because it's on marriage, you're single and you're here looking. All right, I understand that. Uh, There's people from all over the map. I understand that. But what what I hope to cover is that uh, the, the truths about marriage affect all of us. The truths about interpersonal relationships affect all of us because what I really want to talk on this morning is the truth because you know what if if God created this thing called marriage which I believe he did then doesn't it make sense that he's going to give us some tools to help make this work now there's a couple of quick rules as we go into this morning the first one is what I call the no nudging rule if I say something you think applies to your spouse you can't do this and like and, and it's also the no kicking rule and about a month ago I had to add the no amen rule because uh, I, I, was, I was teaching a conference on the, on the differences between men and women's brains, and I was talking about a woman's brain, which we're not going to have time to cover this morning, and this one guy went, amen! I thought, well, okay, I've got to add that one now, too. So no nudging, no kicking, no amen. Uh, and, and the second, and on a much more serious note, I, I always feel a need to say that whenever I'm talking about marriage and making marriage last, I always have to just stop a minute and underscore, no matter who the audience is, that there is never, ever, 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 an excuse for domestic violence, period, end of story. Because people get worried that if you start endorsing permanence of marriage and people staying in marriage, that you're endorsing people to stay in abusive situations, and that's just not true. So just that little punctuation right there for it. Okay, so what do we do with this? Well, first of all, as is always a good thing to do, let's start with what Jesus had to say. Now, there's this one scene out of Matthew 19 where Jesus is teaching, on teaching, and, and a couple of of, of groups of the Jews, of the Pharisees, come to Jesus to trick him, which is always a bad game plan, but they kept trying it anyway. Now, there are two different groups coming to Jesus in, in, in uh, Matthew 19, and it says this, starting in verse uh, the 3. I think that's where I'm starting. I put a new contact in this morning, and I think it's the wrong, <laughs> the wrong, the wrong power. I think that's where it is. Uh, Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, stop. There are two groups, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. That's on the test. There were two primary groups in Jerusalem at the time, and they followed rabbis like you and I follow football teams. Uh, so, so, so there was one group of people followed this one rabbi, and what he felt was that in order for a, a husband to get a divorce, his wife had to do something really bad. Uh, she had to abandon the family. She had to have an affair. She had to do something like that. Only men could get divorces at the time. Women were property. Not how God intended. That's just what's going on during this period of time. All right. Now, the other group believed that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Hey, honey, don't, you, know, you burnt the bread this morning. And I don't mean to make light of that. That's, that's what they felt. And they're coming to Jesus and saying, okay, which of us is right? And Jesus, as he was so good at doing, said, ah, wrong question, wrong argument. Neither one of you is right. And he takes them back to what we call the creation ordinance. He says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. 
So Jesus takes us back to the, to, to the Garden of Eden. He takes us back to what we call the creation ordinance. It is the period of time before sin entered in. This was how God intended it to be. So Jesus said, you're missing the point here. And, and let me underline as well that Jesus is not preaching against divorce in this passage near as much as he is preaching on the permanence of marriage. What Jesus says is this. From the beginning, God wanted couples to stay together. There's a reason for that, and we're going to get into that this morning too. God wanted couples to stay together. He wanted it, uh, them to be one. He quotes the creation ordinance, the two shall be one. And Jesus even added his own punctuation to it. It's that, that line that might have been used in many of your marriages. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Because, again, the emphasis is on God joining people together. So Jesus endorsed the permanence of marriage. And one thing we're going to see a little bit later as well is, is how important the permanence of marriage is. Because you know what changes people in marriage? See, marriage changes people. Married people in the room, that change you? Yeah, sure it did. And, and what we'll look at very briefly towards the very end is that marriage changes people in a way that living together never does. And the primary reason? Because marriage promises permanence. Marriage promises that this is a person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. It's the same reason our faith changes us, isn't it? When people face tough times in life, and when they have a relationship with God and they turn to God, some of the passages that are always the most comforting are passages like Romans 8, where it says, where Paul writes, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God and God's love. Or Hebrews 13.5, where the writer of the Hebrews says, um, he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The promise of permanence, the promise of permanence is what changes us. See, our problem is we, we get into marriage and we don't like the risk and we do get fearful because uh, we think, you know, I've had, I've had two people ask me just in this past week that, uh, that they kind of or explore with me that, that they want some type of guarantee that if they, you know, move forward in this relationship that their marriage is going to be okay or that this marriage, this person they want to marry is going to be okay. Guess what? There are no guarantees. There is a risk involved. We have to step out and risk, but you know what? If we do it the right way, then our, 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 we do the law of the farm, our chances go way, 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 way up. See, our, our problem is when we begin to think that our marriage no longer is working like it's supposed to, we think the answer is just to get out of marriage and, and move on to somebody else. But like the great philosopher Corporal Maxwell Klinger from MASH used to say, marriage is like a horse with a broken leg. You can shoot the horse, but that still won't fix the leg. So I'm going to spend a few minutes, it's in your bulletin here, going through some simple, practical things that you can do to improve your marriage. And the first one is simply this. Choose to listen more than you speak. Choose to listen more than you speak. Now, to carry through with the series that Paul's been doing about five ways to, uh, to, to, to wreck your... Or, I could read it. Five easy steps to wreck your life. Well, we could turn these on the, on the negative and say one way you want to really wreck your marriage is just don't listen to your spouse. Choose to listen more than you speak. Why do people yell? Why do people yell? We're this far apart. We're two feet away, one foot away. I make a comment that I don't think you hear. So I just crank it up a little bit. And somehow that's going to change everything. Isn't that silly? 
We yell because we, sorry if I woke the baby. We yell because we don't think we are being heard. See, when people come to me and say, you know, hey, Tim, we just have a communication problem. I always say, no, you have a listening problem. If you spent more time listening, most of your communication problems would go away. And there's a couple of things we need to understand about listening. First of all, women do it much better than men, but that's a whole other series. Secondly, we need to understand that listening does not mean that I am going to absolutely agree with you. Listening is just listening. Listening is, is finding out what's going on in your world. Happily married couples have what we call strong love maps. That just means they know what's going on in each other's world. They know what they're struggling with, thinking about, praying for, worried about, happy about, thrilled about, excited about. Can you know that if you don't listen? Another thing we need to realize in this whole listening piece is that so many of the things that couples argue about when they do start yelling and getting frustrated with each other and so forth is they are arguing about things that they will never, ever, ever resolve. Studies show that almost 70% of things that couples argue about are what we call perpetual problems. We'll take a little test to prove it. How many of you are punctual people? You have to show up on time or it kind of drives you nuts. All right. How many of you, if you show up on the same day, it counts? All right. How many of you are a place for everything and everything in its place? How many of you, at the end of the day, the house is standing, the kids are alive, it counts. It's a good day. All right. How many of you are morning people? Boy, you get fired up in the morning. That's a, that's a lot of this service, I realize. How many of you night people? You're just getting cranked at 10 o'clock. All right. How many of you get energized by being in a crowd? How many of you get energized by being by yourself? How many of you put on that old pair of jeans you had morning while you found a $20 bill? That 20 bucks is gone. You know where it's going to be spent. How many of you, that's, my, that's in an account, it's paid towards a debt, you've, you've put in a savings, whatever. Okay. Now, how many of you, if you're married, are married to somebody who's different from you in any of those categories? All right. I'm convinced that there are more fights that happen every Sunday morning as people are getting ready to go to church. Because the punctual person is where? In the car. <laughs> Car's warmed up, cooled off, ready to go. And the other person is still in the house doing God only knows what. Right? I mean, I had a guy tell me a while back that his wife can't leave the house unless she goes around and straightens all the curtains. they got to be straight or she can't leave the house. And the person is doing, you know, who knows what in the house. And the person in the car is getting more angry and more frustrated and more mad because they are taking it all so what? Personally. They're thinking, she is just in there to tick me off. She knows, and the problem is she doesn't or he doesn't. Because she just doesn't care like you do. And so they get in the car and have a wonderful ride to church. Uh, you know, either yelling and hollering or, or employing that very useful technique called the silent treatment. That works real well, too. Uh, but th then they get to church and they come in and say, yes, isn't it great to love Jesus? Uh, but the point being is the person who is tardy will just never see it like the other, thing, uh, the other person. So one thing we have to begin to do is we begin to listen to people to simply understand them. We need to understand how you are different from me, how we feel differently about those things. I need to choose to listen more than I speak. And then here's something else about listening. It, the older I get, the simpler some things have to become just so I can remember them. I, I have come up with a little three-word alliteration. Listen, learn, love. The goal of listening is to learn something from you. If I have not learned something from you or about you, I have not listened to you. 
And the second one is to learn. I mean, the, th the third one is to love. I listen to you, I learn, and then love is simply choosing to do something about what I've listened to and learned. Listen, learn, love. Choose to listen more than to speak. Second one is this. Choose to serve rather than be served. Choose to serve rather than be served. Now, now this is an important one. A lot of us get married thinking that, that we're going to just get all these wonderful things now that, that our spouse is just going to do all these wonderful, fantastic things for us. And your spouse does, I'm sure, do many wonderful, fantastic, special things for you. But the goal of marriage isn't what your spouse is doing for you. The goal of marriage is what can I do for my spouse? You know, I, I was a waiter in, in, in graduate school, one of those really fancy places, wore a tuxedo, all that kind of great stuff. But I learned very early on that no matter how good I thought I looked, all of my tips depended on what? How well I served. Well, you know what? The quality of your marriage depends on the exact same thing. A study was done not that long ago of couples who were all in crisis at one stage or another. And they were given one intervention, one intervention only. Husbands were told to go home and help more around the house. This is normally where one of the amens comes in. To help more around the house. And you know what happened? The vast majority of marriages saw huge improvement. It, it even had the side effect, men, get this, it even had the side effect of women thinking their husbands were now sexier. See, we like to think our, our wives think we're sexy in our underwear, but they just don't. But helping them, you know, my, my wife and I went to the park Friday night. My son was playing in a band at the park in Cool Creek in, in uh, Noblesville and uh, in Westfield, I'm sorry, and we were, uh, we were just observing the crowd. I was observing the crowd, as I always do. And you saw, saw so many of these situations where Dad is sitting there in his lawn chair and drinking his beer, and Mom is up taking care of what? All the kids. One couple right in front of me. He didn't get his rear out of the chair once. She was up 35 times. Guys, I don't care if it is Father's Day weekend. One of the best things we can do is help our wives, serve our wives, choose to serve. And whenever I start thinking, get this, whenever I start thinking that maybe I'm a little too important to serve or that I deserve to come home and have my 15 minutes or 30 minutes or sit on the couch or do whatever and not help around the house, whenever I think that I, I shouldn't have to do that, I'm convicted by this wonderful little verse out of Mark where it says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, for even the Son of God, even me, for even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve. Choose to serve rather than be served. Number three, live under a covenant, not a contract. Live under a covenant, not a contract. Your marriage is a covenant. A covenant is simply something that you say you're going to do. Period. A contract says, hey, you want to buy a car, and you want me to loan you the money, so we sign a contract, and I give you the money, and you have to do what? Pay me back, or I get to come get the car. That's a contract. A covenant is God saying, I will never again destroy the earth with the flood. Hadn't happened, has it? And there's even this oath sign, what we call an oath sign. And in that situation, it's the rainbow. It's God saying, look, I'm even going to give you a sign to show you I will never do this again. Marriage is a covenant. It's you and I choosing to, to live and fulfill the vows that we said on our wedding day. Love, honor, cherish, sickness, and in health, richer and for poor. It's choosing to do those things. It's choosing to listen rather than speak. It's choosing to serve rather than be served. It's choosing to realize that, that I'm going to fulfill this covenant because God says marriage is a covenant. 
that he takes very, very seriously. In Malachi chapter 2 in the Old Testament, we see this scene of, of the Israelites complaining uh, that, that God's not listening to them. They don't know why. They're going to church. They're doing their offerings. They're going through all these things. Why is God, why is God not listening to us? And Malachi says, I'll tell you why. Because you're divorcing the wife of your youth, the wife of your marriage covenant. God was taking it so seriously that he was not even paying attention to their offerings because they were treating marriage like it was just nothing. Marriage is a covenant. But you know what? It's back to the law of the farm. There were many, 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 many mornings I got up to go work on the farm that I didn't feel like it. But it was the law of the farm. It was working on the farm that gave us the crop. There are many times I choose to fulfill my vows to my spouse even when I don't necessarily feel like it. But you know what? If you do those things, you get the crop. It's what I call the upside-down economy of God. God said if you want to be the leader, do what? You've got to be the follower you want to be the greatest you got to do what become the least if you really want to be loved in marriage you gotta love you gotta fulfill the covenant choose to live under a covenant not a contract because whenever couples come in for counseling they're never complaining about their partner not fulfilling the covenant they're complaining about the partner not fulfilling whatever they think is the contract number three or number four build hedges not excuses Paul talked about this a lot last week, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Build hedges, not excuses. Hedges are simply protective barriers we put around our relationship. Andy Stanley did a great, uh, a pastor out of Atlanta did a great series recently called Guardrails. And he talked about that a guardrail, you bump it into a guardrail, you know, it's not a sin, it's not a rule, it's not, you know, it's whatever. It's just simply there to protect us from going to where we don't want to go, off the edge of the cliff. And so putting protective guardrails in our marriage is incredibly important. You know, things like I will not have a meal with, with the opposite sex person I'm not married to. I will not carry on these conversations. I, you know, the, the, the great offender and beginner of, um, that's really a word, the starter of affairs nowadays, the most common way that people are beginning affairs is through Facebook. People are connecting with old boyfriends and girlfriends without sharing it with their spouse. They have a secret Facebook account, and all of a sudden they find Mary from high school, and oh, they start talking, and oh, yeah, my husband's a jerk too, and... Oh, I'm going to be in Dallas next weekend. It's off and running. My wife has full access to my phone, my cell phone, my, my, uh, 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 my Facebook account, absolutely everything. She even, I even have a program on my computer that she gets a, a copy of, of websites that I visit. So she knows what I'm doing on the computer. And I'm a professor of intimacy and sexuality. I go some weird spots sometimes. But she has this ability. She, <laughs> she has this ability to... to it's a guardrail. It's simply a guardrail. Build hedges, not excuses. Because here's what I know. Most marriages don't die by disaster. They die by neglect. They die by you and I starting to simply not protect what once was so special to us. Let's watch this video and kind of make that point. Families never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Marriages never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. The law of the farm works in the negative as well. If we go down a path and we don't protect our marriages, we don't build the hedges, we spend more time building excuses and making rationalizations for our behaviors and the things that we're doing, we're on a path to a slow fade. The fifth one is to remember that it's not about we, it's about me. I'm sorry, 
flip that. Uh, it's it, uh, the fifth one to remember is is it, I can't remember how you worded it in your bulletin. It's not about me. It's about we. Thank you. That, you know, that's not even Freudian. That's just silly. Uh, it's more about we than it is about me. I mean, sometimes the simplest thing to remember in marriage is that you're on the same team. You're wearing the same colored jerseys. You want the same thing. You know, when you see Peyton Manning on the sidelines screaming and hollering at one of his receivers, it's not because he wants to win and the other guy wants to lose. They're disagreeing because they both want to win and somebody did something wrong. And so they're arguing about it, but now they're going to go back out on the field and work together because they're wearing the same colored jerseys. Marriage and family is about we. And sometimes the, 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 the toughest thing to remember, because the biggest problem in marriage, when this is probably where the meat comes in, the biggest problem in marriage, the biggest problem in my marriage, well, it is me. You know, it's me doing doesn't the world revolve around me dance. It's thinking that it is about me. No, marriage is not about me. It's about we. It's about remembering that we are one, as Christ said, and, and that when I make decisions about my day, my week, my month, my year, I, I need to take we into consideration. It is about we. Yeah, I want to just go through quickly those last three parts, parts on your outline when it talks about developing a, a marital mission. First of all, marriage matters to kids. It just does. Kids that grow up in the biological home of their married mother and father do better in every social category imaginable. Sometimes that makes people mad, but it's just a sociological fact. They do better in every single category. They're healthier. They make better grades. They do better in school. They make more money. They have better marriages, on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So whatever we can do to, to, to keep that happen. You know what? And, you know, when dad's in the room, I'll tell you this. The absolute most important thing you can do for your kids is love their mom well. The, absolute most, the absolutely most important thing you can do as a dad is to love their mother well. Number two, marriage matters to you. Marriage matters to you. You know, men and women that are in healthy marriages, and I underline healthy, are the same thing. They're they're healthier. They have all of these benefits that just don't happen to people that choose to live together. Because choosing to live together does not promise or does not present the promise of permanence. And again, people get mad about this as well, but it's just a fact. Young people especially, listen to this. If you live together before you get married, you have now doubled your risk of divorce. You are in the 75% risk category for a divorce if you live together before you get married. Because living together and getting along, again, sorry if that upsets some people, because living together and getting along for a few months or a few years doesn't guarantee anything. What makes marriage work is the promise of permanence and the commitment to fulfill your vows and your promises. My wife and I never even lived in the same state until we got married. We can fulfill those. Marriage matters to you. And finally, marriage matters to God. And here's an important part. And this goes back to something Paul was saying last week. Paul stood up last week, and I, again, applaud him for it, when he said, wouldn't it be great if Genesis Church became known as a church? If I misquote you a little bit, I'm sorry. Where, where, where we are known to support marriages. We are for marriage. We do everything we can to make marriage work. You know what? God gave marriage a very important task. In Ephesians 5, Paul again is going to quote the creation ordinance. 
where it is the two shall become one from the Garden of Eden. Then he also says this. He talks about this profound mystery. After all, no one loves his own body, but feeds it and cares for it. I'm reading in verse 36 now. For we are members of his body. I mean, 31. Again, my context. Okay. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Now, without going into an hour explanation on all the theological mystery, this, that, and the other, let me tell you what that means. That means that one of the reasons God created marriage is so that the world who doesn't know Jesus would know how much Jesus loves them. In other words, people should see your marriage and know how much God loves them. If you're married, here's the mission for you. Here's the mission God has given your marriage, to represent His love on earth. Marriage should be the place where there is more service, more sacrifice, more forgiveness, more peace, more kindness, more tenderness, more fulfillment of promises than any other relationship on earth. And if you're a believer, God has called us to that. And I'm absolutely convinced if you want to be a church that, that, is, that is known for supporting marriage and you figure out how to do this right, because 90% of the people will get married at some point in their life, virtually 100% of those want their marriage to last, that if you start showing them how to do that, they will be knocking down the doors. And the way we do it, it's nothing special from us. It's nothing special for me. It's nothing unique about me. It's that I'm choosing to listen. I'm choosing to serve. I'm choosing to be committed and fulfill the promises. I'm choosing to build hedges. I'm choosing to, to be nice. I'm choosing to fulfill my promise. It is the promise of permanence that changes us. Let's watch this video clip. Marriage is about fulfilling promises. The promise of permanence comes from, from the fulfillment of the promise that we will do the, what we said we were going to do. It's choosing to listen. It's choosing to serve. It's choosing to build hedges. It's choosing to remember that we is more important than me. Here's something I know about you. If you are married or plan to get married, you want a great marriage. You want the adventure that lasts a lifetime, that is made with the fulfillment of promises. And guess what? God has given the ability to you to fulfill any promise you make. It's about choices and choices you can make. I told you that marriage is a lot about fear. There's another great story out of the Old Testament that all of you know where the children of Israel are all standing at the brink of the promised land. God has given it to them. All they have to do is go in and trust God. But they chose not to go in. Why? Because they were afraid. A buddy of mine, Scott Stanley, says, you know, that's where it is for marriage for so many people. They are on the brink of the promised land, this truly great relationship that is going to take them listening it's going to take them choosing to serve, to be nice, to forgive, to do everything they can to let their marriage represent Christ. That's hard. That's difficult. It's a frightening place to go. But if you choose to step in and fulfill those promises, that's the promised land of marriage that we all long for. We've gone over this morning, and that's my fault. I'm the guest speaker, so I can get away with that. But I hope you hear this. Marriage is created by God, is beneficial to you, is a great gift you give your kids, and is a mission 
God has given you to fulfill, to reach a world that desperately needs to know him. So I hope that you go from here and have a really great adventure. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for your love. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for dying to save us from our sins. Thanks for giving us this gift of relationships, the gift of family, the gift of marriage. Father, I pray for the fathers in the room that they may fulfill their commitments to you and, and to their spouses and, and truly love their moms in a way that uh, so encourages and uplifts their children. Father, give us the strength to make choices even when we don't want to make them. You have still given us that ability even when we don't feel like it. Father, may we go from here and live our lives in a way that represents you in such a way that people want to know your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.